Hi, I'm Ann Crisco, president of Holy Family University, and you're listening to Asked and Answered. Holy Family University is an anchor institution serving local communities in Philadelphia and Bucks County. An important aspect of serving these communities is education. Education brings hope and helping to get important information out to the people who need it most. In this episode, I'll introduce you to a physician who is playing a pivotal role in trying to combat misinformation in the healthcare space on a national scale through the use of social media. Dr. Cedric Jamie Rutland is a pulmonary and critical care physician and owner of West Coast Lung. He is a national spokesperson for the American Lung Association, along with the president and founding member of the Association for Healthcare Social Media. Dr. Jamie is also a self-proclaimed non-influencer and sneakerhead. Dr. Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time to join Asked and Answered. So to let our listeners know, we know one another through a mutual connection. My son. And the two of you bonded over your mutual love for sneakers, which I just love that guys look at each other's feet and check out their shoes. And while <laughs> I know that you could talk all day about sneakers, I'd like for our audience to learn more about you, your work, and how you got to be Dr. Jamie. You know, I think we need to talk about the day I met your son, because I think what that does is it combines, you know, several things that, that I'm about, right? And they all kind of took place at the same place, same date, same time. I live in Southern California and your son lives in Southern California. And I was on a 10 year wedding anniversary trip with my wife at a resort in Southern California. And I'm in the coffee shop waiting for coffee, wife's in line, getting coffee. She gets her typical Americano with two pumps of sugar-free vanilla. I'm an almond milk latte guy. So that's what I was getting. And I'm just sitting in the chair with my kid, or not with my kids, sitting in the chair and I see a man chasing a baby. And I see this man chasing a baby and he's got on some pretty nice sneakers, right? He has on Air Max Ones, which is Nike's kind of first Air Max. And they're in this pink and green color. And I thought that they were like sick. And so I strike up a conversation with this young man. I immediately look at him. And when you look at him, you can see, we call eczema, atopic dermatitis, kind of on his face, on his skin. And when he starts talking, I can hear kind of sinus congestion. So we're, we're talking, we're in a conversation. And I immediately kind of ask him, I'm like, do you have, you know, sinus problems and rashes? He's like, oh my gosh, like so much. I guess it's crazy. So whatever, we, we cross paths, nice shoes, nice kicks, whatever. So a few of my sneakers leave. I think maybe, what, four hours later, we're on a hike. And I think you're with him. We're on a hike and I run into him again. And, I, and in my head, I'm like, man, you know, I really should have said something. I should have told him like I can help him out, you know, their medications to help with this. And I really feel like he needs these medications. I see him again. And I'm like, listen, I'm like, this is what I think you need. Pretty simple to give. My office is down the way. Like, just come to the office, wear some sneakers and let's get you treated. Right. And that's how the relationship kind of started. And the relationship continues today. Thank you. That was perfect because... Part of what the audience should know is, is Lewis, my son, has suffered from allergy-related eczema and asthma since he was a baby. And whether he's in the city or he's in the countryside, he's allergic to everything. And so it's always been a struggle. But we're also a family that 
is very reluctant to take long-term medication. So even though we knew about medication, he was reluctant to take it. I could not convince him to try it, but you gave him the confidence of, to all of us that this was, you explained it in a way that made us understand that it was not gonna affect him systemically, that it was a really targeted medicine, which to me is like amazing that we could even do this now. And that yeah. helped a lot. And thankfully he's on the medication and he's doing great. So that's the good news. That all worked. So had that happened to you? Like why of all things, did you grow up in California and did you always, were you always like interested in medicine or like where did this come from? Yeah, I grew up in California and my family was very educated. And yeah, you know, I'm black and grew up in a very educated black family. Grandfather went to Morehouse, grandmother went to Spelman. They had high expectations for their children who all went to college, graduated college, and some even went on to professional school. My aunt went to journalism school. My mom went to law school. So it was expected for me to do something, right? And so when I was 10 years old, I wrote down in Sister Anne's class, I went to Catholic school my entire life, kindergarten to 12th grade, and I'm Catholic. Yeah. And I wrote down in Sister Anne's class. She was our counselor. She was like, I need you to write down two short-term goals, two long-term goals. I'm 10 years old. So I wrote down get a scholarship to North Carolina or Georgetown in basketball and then go to the NBA or, <laughs> go, to medical, <laughs> or go to medical school and become a doctor. So I wrote it down, right? And I brought it home and every day after school went to my grandparents' house, right? So my grandfather, who was like my father, because my dad wasn't around that much when I was growing up. My grandfather was like my dad, slapped it on the refrigerator and it remained there for 15 years, right? Until he died, until he moved. That's a great um, story. It didn't matter in whatever walk of life I was in, he reminded me. I was a basketball player, and I was pretty good at basketball, and I was getting looked at to go to college and play basketball. I ended up getting going to UC Davis. You know, I was recruited, lightly recruited to play there, and I remember driving to school one day. My grandfather would drive me back and forth from Davis to Sacramento because they weren't very far. He looks at me, and he says in his very distinctive, characteristic voice, He says, listen, and right, you know, black people, we get familiar with one another. And he said, listen, and he said a word that you're not supposed to use, but we use kind of amongst each other all the time. But he said, listen, you can't try to go to medical school, play basketball and chase women. He said, one of those has got to go. At that moment, like in all seriousness, my knee was hurting at the time anyway. I Basketball was done. Like I gave it up. Like I was done with it. It was over. And there were times when you regret it. But at that point, I put my energy into school, right? And I was never like the smartest guy in the class growing up. At least I wasn't the guy that got the highest grades in the class growing up, right? I always got A's and B's, but I just kind of just did it. So put all my effort and energy into getting accepted into medical school, which was very difficult, right? I had a lot of counselors that say, you're not going to do it. You're not going to get in, whatever. And I'm kind of one of those guys that doesn't really take no for an answer in that aspect of my life. But Jamie, you know how important it is. We all talk about it. How many of us have encountered adults in our lives when we're kids who could totally defeat us? Just one (laughs) comment they could make could totally deflate us. Yeah. And, you know, that's so interesting. I remember, oh, my God, you just took me back for a second. I remember I was a senior in high school playing basketball. I transferred Catholic schools in the middle of high school. I went from the all boys Catholic school to the boys and girls Catholic school. And we were playing my senior year. We were really good. Went to the state championship, but in the league championship, we were playing 
my former school. And it was like probably the biggest basketball game of my life. And I played like complete crap. Right. And my mom was flying back and forth to Philadelphia and she wasn't supposed to make the game, but she did. And she ended up in the stands. And I look up in the stands. I'm like, oh, my God, mom is here. All right. Here we go. Right. Played like crap. I had like eight points. I had like five turnovers. It was a terrible game. We lost the game. After the game was over, my mom runs up to me and she says, she looks me in my eye. I'm 17 years old. Okay. She looks me in my eye and she says, you made me travel all this way to watch you lose. Why didn't you just take the ball and win? And it's funny because I think as parents, you're a parent, I'm a parent, you know your children. And that comment, I'm 41, almost 42 years old now. That comment has remained in my head for so many years. I can't tell you how many times I'm studying or whatever it is that I'm reading and trying to get through. I think about that comment and it just motivates me to do more, right? And to do more. It's like, not enough, not enough, not enough. Just like that game, you weren't prepared. Prepare some more. And it's just like one of those things that you get to know as, you're, as, a, as, a, as a child. And it's just resiliency and being able to get through. And as a parent, it's very hard, right? Because you got to know when to kind of hug and when to nudge. You just don't know. Amen. And it's very, very, it's very, very difficult. But I think that as we go through life, you're going to be faced with moments that make you uncomfortable. And those are the moments where you grow the most. So you can't be afraid of those. If somebody says to you, you can't do this, you might want to agree with them. But if you think that you can, you don't have to agree with them. You just keep moving, right? right. You just keep taking that next step. And I just think that's an important point. You know, it's something I try to teach my kids. And well, I'm sure it's, it's something that you thought you were. Well, you hope so, because you want to give them, I mean, we use the word agency. It's a fancy word now, but we don't have that confidence as young people. Right. You're very influenced by the people around you. So it's also, isn't it challenging? You have to, and I bet you you're finding you can't be the same parent to both children. They need you to be different. Yeah. That's yeah. another whole parenting conversation. A whole other right. parenting conversation. Yeah. So let me ask you this now. So you were educated in a very traditional way, right? Before social media was very big. Because I'm fascinated. I follow you on Instagram and I'm learning more about lungs and sacs and tubes and and I'm fascinated by it. So tell me how you think about using social media. Obviously, I think you think it's working because you're doing it. So talk to us a little about using it as an educational tool. Because I think there's a lot we can learn a traditional education from it. The first point I always want to make is like social media is a vessel of communication. So for me, it starts with communication. And there are two particular events that happened in medical school and in fellowship that solidified my thought process of communication is king. The first event, I was a third year med student. I went to University of Iowa for medical school. It was a top 10 medical school. Of course, there's not very many black people in Iowa. I'm one of the only black kids in my class. There might've been like four of us out of 146. But I'm in medical school. I'm on a rotation called obstetrician, gynecology, oncology. So it was women with ovarian cancer, uterine cancer. There was a lady named Mrs. P. She had metastatic ovarian cancer was all over her body. They did a couple of surgeries. I was in the surgical intensive care unit. And as a medical student, you have all the time in the world. So you're just there. And you can choose to just sit in the office and kind of do these little tasks, or you can choose to communicate. I chose to communicate with this family from the Northwest corner of Iowa, all white farmers, and I could tell that there was this tension in the room, right? And I kind of knew 
that the tension was because I was black. But growing up, the way that I grew up, my grandfather always said, listen, it's never because you're black. He never wanted me to think that way. So I didn't think that way. I knew it, but I didn't think it, right? I didn't let it affect the way that I communicated. So I communicated, told them everything that was going on. My time in the rotation passes. The first day I'm off the rotation, Mr. P, the kind of patriarch of the family who's bringing the family through all of this because mom is dying of ovarian cancer, says to my colleague, I never loved a colored fella the way that I love Jamie, but I do. And the way that he said that initially, you think, man, that guy was racist. But it took 10 days of communication to get this guy to perhaps think completely differently about an entire race of people. And if I would have thought, man, this guy is racist, his family is racist from the beginning, I may have not given my own self that opportunity to do that. So that's one. The second event was with my pulmonary and critical care attending when I was in fellowship at KU Med. We're walking to an African-American female's room and she's being non-compliant and screaming and yelling at all kinds of people. And he's like, we have to see this lady. She's really sick. And so we get up to the room and you can tell that she's just in stress and all of this. And she's, you know, she's mama. I, I know who she is. Like, I've, I've seen that woman bid a billion times. And I told my, my attending, I said, Dr. Simpson said, I got this. So I walk in the room and I start talking to her and I call her mama and we start talking, opens her up, whatever, everything goes well, like fine. We're leaving the room, we're walking in the hallway, we go back towards where we kind of, where our home base is in the hospital. And he turns to me and Dr. Simpson was very liberal, ponytail, white guy, but liberal points out really honest, decent man. I still talk to him to this day. We're walking back and he looks at me and he says, Jamie, I said, yeah, he's like, how did you know to call her mama? And I said, because that's who she is. She's, she's grandma. She's big mama. That's who she is, right? I was like, it just is. And it was at that moment where I was like, you know what? Communication is king. And understanding cultures, understanding how to communicate messages and disease to people is of the utmost importance. And that's what I'm going to spend my life doing. This was 2014 or 15, before kind of social media got big, big, but it was getting big. And so social media just became a vessel to be able to communicate, just became a vessel to be able to teach. So I don't look at it as like, I want these followers to follow me and watch me and all that. I don't care. Like what I look at it as, here are a bunch of people that scroll through on a daily basis to look for entertaining things. I'm not going to be funny. I'm not going to do a stupid joke. I'm not going to, you know, fall off a, a cliff and have people watch me fall off a cliff. I'm simply going to explain medicine in a way that you can understand and perhaps that you can apply it to your life, whether it's you yourself or your friend or your family member. And it all stems from that communication aspect, from those lessons that I learned growing up. My family is full of communicators. They're really good at speaking and articulating and communicating. And that's where I got it from. That's where it develops from. But I look at social media like that. It is a way to communicate. Are you pleased with it? Like, do you do you feel like it's serving the purpose you wanted to? In my life, in Even the way as that a I tool, use it, right, right. Like mm-hmm. as a tool, it's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, in in my life and the way that I use it, yeah. You know, sometimes people have it wrong. You know, there's this combat misinformation. Like, I personally think that that's a stupid phrase. I'm not saying that, you know, people are stupid for saying it. The reason I think it's a stupid phrase is because I don't see somebody saying something wrong and then go after them saying something wrong. I just simply teach what's right. 
I'm not gonna mention the wrong thing. I'm just going to teach the factual thing, the scientific thing, the thing that makes sense. Because when you look at misinformation that's published, it's produced very well. That's the difference. It's the level of production, right? And so I knew that for me to be able to spread the message that was scientific and correct, I had to up my level of production. I had to get myself in areas where the production was going to be great to compete with the individuals that were perhaps saying something that was wrong. And so I, I don't like to say combat. I like to say information, giving information, right? That's how I look at it. Okay. Well, certainly you're right because it's part of communication. That's the language that you use about what you're trying to do, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. think about... You know, we have 3,600 students, probably two thirds of them are doing something in the healthcare field, neuroscience, bio, pre-med, big, big nursing program. A lot of people coming back to get a second degree in nursing. Talk to me a little bit about, or us, all of us, like any thoughts about sort of after what we've been through with, with all of the health pandemic, is it changing? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because there are things that are happening that I don't necessarily like. There are things that are happening that I do like. When I think about the things that are happening that I don't necessarily like is I see a lot of attention being created around individuals in the healthcare space who are stating how many hours they work, stating they've been up for a certain amount of hours and it's unfair, stating that they've been abused. And I'm not saying that they have or they haven't. But what I feel is happening is you get you, people are looking at it as a lot of complaints and I feel like it cheapens our duty in our field. I took an oath to take care of people when they're sick and it doesn't matter what time of day they're sick. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. If I'm on call or if I'm the guy that's there, I have to take care of them, period, end of story. There's no like, I need to go get sleep. There's no, I have to take care of them because I'm the one that's there. And so I really feel like healthcare being involved in healthcare is difficult. It's not easy. It's very hard. And there are a select few number of individuals who can do it. And if you're one of those, go ahead and do it. Don't look at the long line of people that you have to take care of. Look at just the next person you have to take care of and take care of them and take care of them well, and then move to the person after that. And I know it can be difficult and I know it can be overwhelming. The whole pandemic and what happened during the pandemic, again, I'm pulmonary critical care. So I was there, right? I was in the thick of it. It was hard. It was overwhelming. It was difficult. It was all of the things, but we did it and we got through it. We lost life. That sucked, but we learned from it, right? We learned. And I think that I don't expect anyone to rescue me in the midst of taking care of people. I don't expect anybody to pull me out and say, you're relieved. I'm going to do what I do because I've taken an oath to do it and because I love it and because I love it. And I think it's very important for people to understand in general with, with, with healthcare. And I think the other thing that I think is important is there's a quote by Ryan Holiday. The best book I think I've, the best book I think anyone can read is a book called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. It's kind of taken from a lot of Marcus Aurelius and his writings. But in that book, you basically learn that a lot of times when you get frustrated and you get mad, it's because of your ego, right? You feel like you're this or you feel like you're that, whatever it is. But one of the best quotes in that book is success is intoxicating, but to sustain it requires sobriety. 
That yeah. is one of these quotes that I say to myself almost every day, because there are a lot of things that are going on in my life. There are a lot of things going on in healthcare. You just have to remember that you have to have that strive to continue to learn. You have to have that strive to, to continue to be great, not just be great, but everything that you did to get where you are are things that you have to continue to do to get where you might not know uh, where the destination is. Who knows? But you still have to continue to build on those foundations that you've had previously. And it's, it's, it's not hard. I mean, I was diagnosed with ADHD, dyslexia, dysnomia, and ADD in medical school. I was a second year medical student. I couldn't study for more than like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But for some reason, I was able to remember so much information in that 20 or 30 minutes that I could get through. And then once I treated myself, it was unbelievable the night and day difference that the amount of information that I could acquire, how long I could study. But all of these things, you know, you discover along the way. And it's so funny, like I said about parents knowing their children. I remember asking my mom when that happened, I said, mom, did, you know, any of my teachers when I was younger, Mrs. Palaki or Mrs. Lachesay, my kindergarten and first grade teacher, uh, did they ever say anything? They're like, oh yeah, they said stuff all the time. And I said, well, uh, what happened? Like, she was like, you were getting straight A's. I wasn't going to put you on anything. You were fine. You were a kid. You were able to play with your toys and you were able to answer questions like that. Like, it was fine. Right. And so it's just like, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know how I got back to parenting again, but I tend to do that. This is a lot of what we do. Right. And so yeah. knowing my son, Lewis, he probably also had some sort of ADHD. He didn't pull A's and B's, it was more like B's and C's. But I always felt that, so he's a kid and so we can't sit still for more than 20 minutes. I'm not gonna drug him so he'll sit mm -hmm. still. So right. yeah, as parents, we're always making those decisions. Jamie, one of the things you were talking about is around this idea of ego as enemy. Recently, I was reading an article about people who leave their work and then don't really go through the discerning process of understanding what it was about that work that they didn't, that wasn't right for them. And then they just go right back in and repeat it again. They use this example of thinking about your, your life and your orientation to work. And they talked about a job, which is, you know, you work so many hours a day and you bring home a paycheck to take care of your family and your life. There's a career where you get a little more satisfaction out of your work, but basically it's still contained and you have a private life that's not into, not being interfered by your career. And then there's vocation. And in vocation, you're at a place where you're willing to give up some of your private life because this, of what you're doing is so, is so meaningful for you in more than one way. It's not just because it's a living, it's because you're passionate about whatever it is you're doing. And so for me, it certainly sounds like, I mean, I've always felt like I lucked out. I'm in education. How lucky can we be? Right. And in many ways, I think about you have to have that same perspective and you voiced it. It's vocation because you have to want to keep learning. You're never done. But You're it can't done. be about the amount of hours you put in a day or a week because that's not what this is about. Right. It's, and and, and it's, well. it's so funny because I've had colleagues say to me, like, why are you studying that? You don't need to know that. Like, well, you're a pulmonologist. Why are you studying immunology? And I'm like, you know, in your head, you just have to be comfortable just kind of thinking like, thank you. Thank you for saying that to me. I appreciate you looking out for me, but I feel like I need to do this. Right. I mean, you're, you know, it's, it's just you, you kind of get to this point where it's like, you're not me. I'm going to do this. Let's move on. And I'll, and I'll learn how to apply it in my life. Right. So, 
Touche. Yeah, it's hard. So I think we have to wrap up, but you know, I have to ask you at least one fun question, right? So sure. like, so I could show my son, I think I'm like, cool. So tell me something I could like, what's the latest hot sneaker or something I could like throw uh, around and mention Tim. So well, like, here, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I don't tell this story often. Okay. I'll tell the story. Why am I in love with sneakers? This is a very scary story. I was 14 years old and I just wanted the movies with my girlfriend and I had on the brand new air pennies. They're called foam posits. And my cousin had on my air max 95s. We leave the movie theater and my father was absent a few times. Anyway, he wasn't, he didn't show up to pick us up. So we start walking. And this is when Oak Grove, which is in Northern California, is in development. So basically, you have a movie theater, and then you have like a mile, and then you have another little development. But you have to walk that mile through dirt, and it was dark. So we're walking through dirt, and a car stops. And I'm like, Todd, we should turn around. This car just like kind of made a U-turn, saw us walk in, and stopped. And he's like, no, 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 let's keep going. I'm like, all right. So we kept going. Guy pulls out a gun, wants our shoes. And so we run the other way. He takes our shoes and we run back to the movie theater, call the cops. So I go home shoeless. I get to my dad's. I'm staying at my dad's that night. And I don't want to say too much of what's going on there, but I had another pair of shoes that I had brought with me there, but those pair, but those shoes are gone as well. So the events of that night are crazy. But the next morning I called my grandfather to pick me up. And I went home without any shoes. That is probably where my love of sneakers started was because of that event. And it's just one of those things where like, you think about it, you're like, damn, like I was lucky. There were two or three different opportunities that night where I could have been dead, right? I could have been seriously injured, but I wasn't. And going home shoeless and all of that. So most people don't know that story of mine growing up because I don't share it too much but that would be you know that's a, that's an interesting story I don't know if it's a cool story but it's an interesting story but my favorite pair of sneakers the latest pair of sneakers that have come out your son and I actually just got they're called the Jordan 4 Abominary collaboration so your son and I just got them Good. So when the both of you promised that you're done and you're not buying any new sneakers for the rest of the month or the trimester or whatever it is, I'll know not to, not to believe him <laughs> or you. That's true. Absolutely uh, true. I also think it's just telling to realize, you know, this happened to you a while ago. And so, you know, people preying upon each other, unfortunately, has been something as a society we've been living with a long time and we still do. You know, and I'm still rattled. The last shooting was last night at in in Michigan. Michigan State. That's oh, just yeah. my my coworker or what are they, a guy that I work with, where I create content with. His son goes to Michigan State, and he sent me a video of the shooter walking right by his son's house. Yeah, and I'm a university president. How does that make me feel right now? You know, I don't know, I don't know what you do with these campuses and the, and how open they are. Like, what do you do? That is what is so terrifying. Right. is like, what do you do, right? What do you do? And the, the thing is, it's like certain people say one thing, certain people say another thing, and things change based on your experience and how many degrees away you are from the actual event. So right. it's just. Yeah, and we're in Philly. I'm happy to say we're, we have been designated the safest school in Philly. So that's great. 
Yeah, but doesn't mean we could rest, right? We're still, you know, awareness, big awareness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know you're in the middle of a lot of things. Keep it up. Keep talking about how important it is that young people pay attention and want to go into the health field because we need a lot more of them in there. That's for sure. My generation keeps getting older and grayer. We need you young folks to step up and take care of us. (laughs) Don't believe the hype. Medicine is hard. Healthcare is hard. It doesn't mean you can't do it. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Go on and do it and be great at it. Amen. Dr. Jamie, I could talk to you all day, but that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining me. To learn more about Dr. Jamie, please visit westcoastlung.com. And to learn more about Holy Family University, please visit holyfamily.edu. Onward and upward together in faith and family. I'm Ann Prisco, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.